Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The world's attention on the President of the United States and a $2.25 trillion plan. I really take your point there, John, about the world will be attention here because this is a sea change in terms of stimulus and then, as we see on infrastructure. What I like about this, John, and particularly our next guest, is he is definitive as the experienced deputy. I don't know anyone, John, of this vintage who, as deputy or special assistant, has such an interesting cross-section of experience in the executive process in Washington. That man is Brian Deese and he joins us right now, the White House Director of the National Economic Council. Brian, good to catch up again. Let's just start right here. Big plan, a lot of detail we need to work through. I want to start with a simple one. Help me understand how you'll measure success beyond just big terms like closing the gap, closing the K. How will you measure success specifically in the years to come? Well, look, uh, it's good to be with you guys. We have a major infrastructure problem in the United States. We're 13th globally uh, when it comes to our physical infrastructure. Uh, our roads are in bad need of a pair. The typical uh, person pays $1,000 in extra cost uh, in wasted time and fuel. And if you think about modern infrastructure like broadband, one in three households uh, in rural areas of the country can't even access high-speed internet. This is all holding our economy back. So as we think about coming out of this crisis and rebuilding and building back better, as the president said, we need to train our focus on a big, bold, but also practical investment in America. And that's what the president's gonna talk about today. The American Jobs Plan is a historic capital investment in America. And our metric of success will be, can we make a generational investment, improve these things that matter to people's lives, uh, they, the way they commute, the way they interact with their loved ones, the way they work, and do so in a way that actually creates millions of jobs in the process. So that's the goal. That's, the, that's what the president will be talking about today, and that's where we'll be kicking off the legislative process. This, of course, is public sector investment. We need to talk about private sector investment as well, and many people will be asking, Brian, how raising the corporate tax rate as we come out of a crisis actually helps develop private investment in America. Well, look, uh, you talk about private investment, and I do want to just make an important point. These public investments are among the highest return investments in terms of spurring private investments. So we know public investments in airports return several dollars in private investments. Public investments in basic R&D provide the backbone for innovation off which private investment flows. So we know these are the kinds of high value investments mm -hmm. that can spur the kind of private investment we need. We also think it's a reasonable thing to look at how to cover the cost of that capital investment over the long term. That's where the president's proposal comes in. Corporate tax reform, uh, let's end the race to the bottom internationally. Let's have a competitive tax system that encourages domestic investment and do so in a way that over 15 years would raise sufficient revenue to cover this plan. Brian Deese, you will be in Pittsburgh. That is in the vicinity of Connor Lamb's 17th Congressional District. You need Connor Lamb's vote to get this done. How are you going to amend, adjust, establish the taxes to pay for this so that Mr. Lamb can be reelected? 
Like in districts like that and all around the country, people see and feel why we need this investment. Yes. Bridges are crumbling. Schools are crumbling. There are 400,000 schools, including uh, in that district, where kids are drinking water from lead pipes. Okay, but how are you going to do the taxes? Brian, tell me how Connor Lamb is going to vote for this, given the tax hesitancy from sea to shining sea. Here's what I would say. You look at the 2017 tax cut that passed without a single Democratic vote. It was bad tax policy. Uh, It's encouraged more profits uh, and production to actually move overseas. And it's deeply unpopular. What we're saying is we can do better than that. We can create a competitive tax code. We can raise revenue and we can invest in things that really matter uh, to the American people. And so that's the uh, th- th- that's the basics of this. The corporate tax reforms that we're talking about here would still leave the corporate rate lower than any year since World War II, other than the last couple of years in the wake of the Trump tax cut. So what we're talking about here is reasonable and practical, and the investments would really change the game for families in places like uh, Western Pennsylvania. Brian, there's a radical economic sea change under what you're talking about. This idea that in the past, there was a popular belief that the private sector was way more efficient than the public sector. It was the way to generate growth. This proposal, questions that, basically saying it needs to come from the government. Yes, it's infrastructure, but it's a lot of other programs as well. What evidence are you pointing to that public uh, investing can be perhaps as efficient or more efficient in generating growth and pushing this economy ahead? Look, at the end of the day, the private investment is what uh, drives uh, the economy forward. But at core, if we look back to great periods where America has done great things, whether it's the building of the interstate highway system or the space race in the 1960s, well-designed public investment can spur innovation, it can spur productivity, and it can spur job growth all around America. We know that's true in things like basic research. We know it's true in things like physical infrastructure. And the issue is that for 40 years, we have undermined those basic drivers of economic growth. So this isn't about the public versus the private sector. This is about public sector investments that we know will actually generate job growth. We know will help spur innovation across the economy. And we have done before as a country. This is not new. It's just that we haven't done it in in quite some time. And we need to do it at historic scale. Something we haven't discussed so far this morning, Brian, is state and local tax deductions. Can we sit on that just for a moment? There are three House Democrats basically saying we say no salt, no deal. What's your message for them this morning? Look, the president's going to put out his plan today. He's going to talk about why we need these investments, and he's going to talk about some of his ideas on how to pay for it. He is eager, and we are eager now, to hear from uh, everyone about their ideas. There's a lot of people who are going to have ideas about how to structure those investments. People are going to have ideas about how to pay for this. Some people may argue that we don't need to pay for portions of this. That's the conversation that we need to move forward here. What the president is going to be clear is that he wants input from uh, Republicans and Democrats alike. We want to find practical ways to move this forward. But these are investments that we cannot afford not to make. That's the message you'll hear from the president. Brian, you understand from the Republican side, they don't feel like you want their input whatsoever. They were invited to the White House for the last $1.9 trillion bill. They don't feel like they were listened to. Are you just saying that? Or do you actually hear something from the Republican side you'd like to include? And if so, what is it? This issue of infrastructure, I think, creates a unique opportunity for us to do uh, work together and find common ground solutions. This is an issue that for years, you all know you've been covering it, Democrats and Republicans, the business community, the labor community have all been saying, can't we come together and do something big on America's infrastructure? This has been happening for years. We've been saying this, but we haven't actually done it. 
We believe this is a unique opportunity. This is a moment, and we are absolutely committed to the idea that we want to bring people right. together, hear their ideas, and find a way forward. Brian, I want you to speak to the nation now. And frankly, Brian, I'm worried about those lousy bridges on Route 7 up by Middlebury in Vermont. But Brian, I want you to speak about this, how far behind we are in internet, in fast internet, for our children learning across America. Is this bill today going to solve that problem? Look, this crisis has exposed just how vulnerable we are as a country to the fact that we don't have the basic infrastructure backbone of the 21st century. We don't have high-speed, reliable internet for everyone. You know, there are kids around the country who are sitting in McDonald's parking lots so yes. they can get online yes. to try to What are we uh, going to do, do about it, Brian? What's in, in this bill today that's going to fix the McDonald's parking lot, the take-my-kid-to-Starbucks reality we see in the island of Manhattan? Absolutely. This bill is going to commit $100 million dollars to get the goal of 100% access to affordable broadband in this decade. It'll do it by building out the physical, uh, uh, the physical elements we need, particularly in rural and remote areas. And it'll do it by providing carrots and sticks to carriers to make sure that there are affordable plans available in every part of the country. We can do this in this decade. We need a one-time investment of public capital, which will spur enormous amounts of private capital and is also the right thing to do so that our kids and our families and our businesses can actually get into the 21st century economy. Brian, this $2.25 trillion plan is thought of as a wish list as much as it is an outline for Biden's plans. How negotiable is this at this point? Where could we see it going in terms of the main non-negotiable points? Well, I think if you go through this plan, uh, every element of it reflects serious and thoughtful work that has been done over the course of years to identify where our gaps in our infrastructure exist and how we could actually invest to solve them, like the issue of broadband we were just talking about. So what we're going to do is we're going to sit down, we're going to ask people uh, where do they see opportunity here and where can we move, uh, move the ball forward. Uh, but what the president is going to be uncompromising about is to say, this is a moment where we need to make a big capital investment in the country. Everybody recognizes that that's the case. The question is, can we actually get it done? That's what the president's going to be saying. Uh, Brian, let's finish on this. 2.25 trillion. And in the White House statement, the great challenges of our time, the climate crisis and the ambitions of an autocratic China. I found the last line there just absolutely fascinating. The ambitions of an autocratic China. Can you spell out specifically to us how the challenges posed by the Chinese Communist Party have shaped this bill in front of us, this plan? Well, one of the things the president's going to talk about today is that this moment is bigger. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the world is watching, that this is a moment where uh, the question is, dem can democracy succeed in delivering for, uh, for their people? And that's a question that a lot of people are asking all around the world. So part of what we're trying to do, or part of what the president's trying to do here, is to make clear what the stakes are. We are falling behind in R&D. We're falling behind in investment in supply chains and critical industries. But this is a moment where we can show that America can actually invest domestically in our own domestic strength in a way that will provide benefits uh, to the world. We've already seen it with the rescue plan. We passed the rescue plan. We've seen increases in our own growth rate, but also spillovers in terms of demand for the world. That is the essential role that the American economy can play and American democracy can play in the world. We just have to show that we're up to the task. Brian, great to catch up with you. Let's talk again soon, specifically on China. We'd love to continue that conversation. Brian Deese there, the White House National Economic Council Director.
Opening day used to be April 10. I don't know now uh, when it was Cincinnati, but I'll tell you, Lisa, it will be great to see all of sports get back in some way or form as we see with the NCAA right now. Yeah, and these plans have definitely been charted out to try to get everyone back and not just for vaccinations, where I know that City Field, for example, in New York City has been, um, and Yankee Stadium for that matter, have been outfitted as inoculation stations. There is a question of how baseball, of how some of the other sports will look different yeah. in a post-pandemic era, Tom, or a almost post-pandemic era. Almost pandemic era. That is something we will address now. Lisa Bramlitz and Tom Keenan, we welcome all of you, particularly Bloomberg 1130 in New York. And I must say, uh, up in uh, Boston, our Bloomberg affiliate up in Boston as well. Joining us now, Derek Jeter of the Miami Marlins, our chief executive officer. He launching himself into the stands a few years ago. The one Yankee that uh, Red Sox fans do respect. And also with us, Anthony Shea with Lone Depot, the executive of the Marlins and the gentlemen from Lone Depot uh, celebrate their announcement that Lone Depot will sponsor the stadium and will be very visible for the Miami Marlins in this season. Anthony Shea, from sea to shining sea, you do loans for America. You do financing for America. What is your advantage to brand with Derek Jeter and the Miami Marlins? Well, good morning. Uh, it is such a exciting day as I'm uh, sitting here at the new Lone Depot Park. Uh, I think our partnership between two organizations, particularly with Derek, is just a natural fit. We are just uh, so enthusiastic about uh, partnering up with Derek and the Marlins organization, and uh, we just couldn't be more thrilled. Uh, Derek, it is the Miami Marlins, which you've worked four and five years on to improve and to really recast the franchise like you knew in New York. Where are you on that path right now? Uh, well, look, you know, we, we've made a lot of progress, I think, in the three and a half years that we've been here, but we still have a long way to go. You'll, you'll always hear me say we have a long way to go, regardless of what happens during the course of the season. But uh, we're, we're taking some positive strides forward, uh, you know, both on the baseball operations side and the business operations side. And, and a day like today is, is extremely important to our, our organization. And we couldn't be happier with the partnership that we have with Anthony and Lone Depot. You start with the Citrus Series with Tampa, but then you've got to get on the road and all the rest of the grind of Major League Baseball. Derek Jeter, you were affected by COVID last year and frankly into this year. What precautions, what did you learn from that process that you can bring forward as this nation heals? Yeah, I tell you what, uh, you know, I said it at the time, uh, affected. I don't even know if that's the right word to use. I mean, we had, you know, 18 players test positive in, in the span of a week. And uh, you know what I think we learned through it, through the course of that uh, ordeal was but you, you can't uh, take anything for granted. I think there was a false sense of security with our players because we were in somewhat of a bubble. And uh, it just takes one one case that can, can end up spreading throughout an entire team. And, and uh, you know, the, the health and safety of, you know, our players, our coaches, our staff, our fans is, uh, is extremely important to us. And, uh, you know, you learn from past mistakes and you move on. So we're, we're happy that, uh, you know, I think baseball as an industry up until this point has, has uh, stayed pretty clear of COVID up until this point. What do you think is harder, Derek, being part of a team that won five World Series or running a baseball franchise as the owner? 
<laughs> That's a good question. I don't even know how to answer that. They're both pretty difficult. I, I, I think, you know, you mentioned it when you're on a team, you're on a field and you have one goal and that's to win a championship each and every year and nothing changes. It's the same thing here. I think the difference probably is, you know, you're when you when you're playing, it's that particular game, that particular day. And on the business side, you're looking three, four, five years down the road. So I think there's a lot of similarities. But at the same time, you got to have a little bit more patience. All right, so more patience, three, four, five years down the lo- uh, down the road at a time when baseball franchises across the nation have been really affected by the COVID pandemic just because of the revenues that have not come in. How will that affect the five-year plan as you see it right now? I don't think it necessarily changes much. I mean, you know, you look at partnerships like the one we have right now with, with Anthony and Lone Depot. Um, you know, you still have to look at the, the overall plan, and we're not going to change. You know, we said... Uh, when we got here, what we're going to do, we wanted to build sustainable success. And that's on the field, it's off the field. And it's partnerships like this that help us out. And, you know, on the field, I think we've done a pretty good job of building an organization that, uh, you know, we can be proud of. And, and we've really made some strides there with our minor league system, system, which is the foundation of our success. So in that sense, you know, look, everyone was affected. Every industry was affected. And, uh, you know, moving forward, you're just going to have to bounce back from it. Derek Jeter with us on Bloomberg Radio. We're thrilled to let you know that the Miami Marlins Chief Executive Officer, Derek Jeter, is with us with Anthony Shea. They celebrate Lone Depot's naming rights to the Miami Marlins franchise uh, today. Anthony, I want to link this first to you, Anthony, and then to Mr. Jeter. And that is the idea of the spirit of Miami as personified by Mr. Jeter. Anthony, I don't know if you know this, but Jeter launched himself into the stands on a foul ball, seven and a half games ahead of the Red Sox a million years ago. What's the spirit, Anthony, that Lone Depot sees in all of Florida in this building boom? Well, we as America's lender, uh, we certainly uh, have become uh, part of uh, supporting America's housing. Florida is a critically important uh, state for not only America, but certainly for Lone Depot is one of our top uh, customer base. Uh, in addition to the fact that, uh, you know, Florida is a great, great yachting capital of the world, which uh, we personally and I personally enjoy and uh, having the opportunity to pair up with yeah. uh, uh, winners here uh, is just a, a great opportunity for us. Derek, do the kids today play like you? I mean, I know it's like an ESPN <laughs> question and I'm supposed to say that and all that. But come on, Derek. The, the, you know, I see the nation and trying to get baseball front and center. Do the kids today, would they go into the stands on a late night 12th inning? Well, first of all, I, I want to say I don't appreciate you saying that was a million years ago. Oh, it, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, <laughs> 2004. Don't, don't, date me like, don't date me like that. But uh, yeah, you know, look, it's it's the game changes. It, it changes from every generation. I remember when uh, you know I was younger, and, and you know, one great thing is you have access to a lot of the ex players, and they come in and tell you how much the game changed. So the game has changed, but the game's exciting. We have a lot of exciting young players that are. You know, in our organization and in other organizations. So I, I, I kind of find it kind of hard to try to compare generations, but uh, you know, there's a lot of exciting players to watch out there. So the players are exciting, Derek. There is a question of whether we can shorten the games and whether or not uh, perhaps some of the breaks for commercials, for other things, some of the waiting and that people are uh, perhaps don't have the attention span for should be eliminated. Do you support that, shortening the games, taking measures, and what measures do you think we should take? Well, I don't know if you'd necessarily say shorten the games. I'd just say increasing the action within the game. Look, I mean, the games are, what, three hours, three and a half hours. So, yeah, there, there are ways that you can shorten the games. 
to some extent. But uh, I think it's just increasing the action and getting an opportunity to see yeah. how uh, athletic baseball players are. And uh, so I think there are some some minor rule right. changes, tweaks that you'd be able to accomplish that. Derek, I blame Nomar Garcia-Para. He played with a team up to the northeast from where you were playing. He gets out of the box. Every kid in America is doing this with their hands, stretching out the at-bat. Do we need a clock in baseball? <laughs> I don't know if you necessarily need a clock. You know what I mean? They're, I think they're, you know, they're, they're discussing some pitch clocks. And, and, but, right. uh, you know, one of the great things about baseball is – you know, right. the game, never know how long it's going to be. You go out there, it's a family sport. You bring your entire family out, and uh, right. you should be able to enjoy three hours with your family. But Derek, you know, the problem here, and I understand the naming rights, you were struggling and you needed to get a refi through Lone Depot and Anthony Shea, but then you rented your house to Tom Brady. How was Tom Brady as a tenant? I mean, should you have gone to Lone Depot, or did it work out with Mr. Brady as tenant? It, you know what? It worked out, actually. And I, and I told him I deserve, I deserve a Super Bowl ring for, for him renting my house. So there's a lot of championships in that house. Yeah, Anthony, but Anthony, this is so important. I mean, you know, we've talked to Derek and Derek gets the FaceTime. Anthony, what you guys are efforting every day at Lone Depot and with your other efforts, you sold to E-Trade and that over the years. I want you to explain now the advantage of the financing of Lone Depot that has brought you to these naming rights with Mr. Jeter. Well, that's, isn't that a softball pitch, right? Um, you know, we, we are a contemporary financial services company that is uh, built a lot of digital tools that help uh, many of our customers that are buying a home or refinancing right. their home to do it uh, very, very fast and very easy. LoanDepot.com will take care of you. Last word to you, Anthony. Do you see a boom economy out there? Day-to-day in the grind of Loan Depot, do you witness the boom economy this show is predicting? Yes. Uh, you know, currently we are breaking records at our at our company. Uh, interest mm. rates are very, very attractive. Right. Uh, although they're you know higher than they were uh, three, four months ago, they're still historically very low. Right. Uh, the housing boom is uh, we're in the middle of it now. There's uh, very low inventory. I think uh, uh, as we go through COVID, many of us are realizing home is uh, home is everything. It's uh, becoming where we uh, where we yeah. learn, where we go to school, where we work out. So. Home is becoming okay. a lot more important. I was lying. It's not the last question. Derek, very quickly to you. Derek, Jeter, how do we fix Red Sox pitching? <laughs> hey, we have our own things that we're dealing with down here. So uh, I'll let you guys deal with that one. <laughs> you guys are great. Derek Jeter, thank you so much for being thank with you. us. Mr. Shea, congratulations on your naming rights with the Miami uh, Marlins. Many important conversations today, but none more important. Here is Francine Lacroix in London with Christine Lagarde of the ECB. Madame Lagarde, since the ECB's last policy meeting, many euro area countries have extended or even tightened lockdowns. Vaccinations are only making small progress. Is there a point when ever longer restrictions will actually harm the euro area's ability to recover because businesses will just give up? I would observe that uh, we have an economic situation overall, uh, which in this part of the world, Europe, is really marked by uncertainty. And in that general macroeconomic situation that is marked by uncertainty, uh, what monetary policy has to do and what the ECB has to do is to provide as much certainty as possible. And this is really uh, the aim of the most recent monetary policy decisions we have taken, uh, clearly uh, in, in, the, in, the, um, in the scope of uh, our mandate, which is price stability, 
But I think that in the very exceptional circumstances that we are encountering, uh, providing a degree of certainty is, is uh, the best that we can do at the moment. Given the lockdowns and what's going on with vaccines in Europe, Madame Lagarde, has the balance of risk actually shifted since the last policy meeting? Well, our balance of risk uh, is still uh, tilted to the downside uh, in the short term, because we are seeing uh, a degree of uncertainty. We are seeing renewed uh, lockdowns. We are seeing a vaccination rollout that is uh, short of what we had expected. But it is much more balanced uh, in, the medium, uh, in the medium term. And we expect uh, the vaccination rollout to proceed. We expect sufficient herd immunity to uh, be reached at a point in time in the future. And that leads us uh, to um, have rebalanced a bit uh, our uh, assessment of risks in the medium term. So still downward in the short term and more balanced in the medium term. Mario Draghi never got to hike rates. Could you imagine being in the same position? We shall see. Future will tell as the song would go. I would certainly hope that the economy is going to pick up, that there will be a turnaround uh, in, in, the, uh, in the months to come and that we will be able to resume uh, our sort of less exceptional monetary policy uh, going forward. But I'm not, I'm not seeing any kind of uh, uh, raise in the, in the near future for sure. Madame Lagarde, what are markets exactly playing at at the moment? They seem to be continuing testing central banks. Like, how steep of a yield curve is it okay? They can test us as much as they want. Uh, we have a mandate. We have an aim. We're going to be riveted to that, and we're going to do uh, what is required in order to deliver on that. And we have exceptional circumstances to deal with at the moment, and we have exceptional tools to use at the moment, and a battery of those. And we will use them as, as and when needed in order to, as I said, deliver on our mandate and uh, deliver on our pledge uh, to the economy. Uh, Christine Lagarde of the European Central Bank there in the short and the medium term as well for a very busy, busy morning here in America and also in London and across Europe. Francine Lacroix joins us right now, star of stage and screen. We're thrilled she could be with us uh, this morning. Francine, first of all, what is 73 degrees in March like in London? That's Fahrenheit. <laughs> It's nice. This is when all the Brits actually come out in general. But imagine after three months of lockdown. I mean, there was everyone in the parks. Uh, the rules have changed, so people can yeah. actually gather. You can have six people together. But I have to say, it was a high. Yesterday was the warmest March day I think since yeah. in the last 10, 20 years, and everyone was out. And you take Eurostar underneath the channel you come out folks and if you haven't done it the fields of france yeah. the rural beauty as you go into paris and uh whatever the northern trains guard yeah, yeah. You, you know it i don't know it i'm like hey it's french and france <laughs> francine i was actually reading le monde an hour ago in my fractured french they're going to be in lockdown while you're swimming in the thames well, so we're not allowed to go to France at the moment, right? Remember, it, there's lockdown, there's lockdown. So what we heard just a short while ago is that Italy and France, both of them actually, uh, could be set to extend restrictions. And I think the French president is due to address the nation at 8 p.m. local time. But if you're in London, we're coming out of lockdown. But again, the schools were closed for three months, Tom, and you're absolutely oh, not allowed nice. to leave, uh, you know, for foreign lands unless absolutely necessary. So you know, unless I had a very pressing reason to go to Paris, I could not take that Eurostar to end up in Gaudinot. 
So Francine, here in the U.S., as you're probably well aware, uh, we feel like we're emerging from uh, the end of this and, and people are getting out and maybe it's just the weather, but uh, the vaccines are going so well here. And I think a lot of folks here in the U.S. were just shocked at the inability of Europe in particular to manage its vaccine program. What's the feeling on the ground? Well, you're right, Paul. It's actually a disgrace, but this for, you know, I guess, structural reasons. So if you look at what the U.S. did, I think you guys have double the vaccine doses needed for the whole population. So you could vaccinate everyone twice over. In the U.K., we're doing okay. What Europe decided to do is because you have the European Union to, you know, they basically decided to, to choose it as a block. So they negotiated it as a block and they were late to the game. They were about three months late. A lot of people don't want the vaccine. So they're very, very behind. And they're worried about variants, which is why we're in a third lockdown in Europe. And it seems like there's this stop and start vaccine just because it's, but you know, it's difficult. It's many yeah. countries together and they didn't directly negotiate. That took time and they probably negotiated badly. Francine Lacroix, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Our conversation with Christine Lagarde, look for that digitally across all of the Bloomberg uh, platform. This is an interview, a conversation where we're going to talk about one story, but we've got to get to the general international boom that's out there. Europe off a mat, which means David Harrell must have had a good year. He was in like the 114th percentile, something like that. He just did killer year. You know, it's like boom. And then there's a couple years and then boom. Again, David Harrell joining us with Harris Associates and, of course, Oakmark International Fund. David, it's all great, and let's try to get to a general portfolio discussion in a moment. You are um, visible with BMP Paribas and other selected banks, including a small Zurich startup called Credit Suisse Group. Uh, What was it like when you heard once again your bank was uh, really in trouble? It's very frustrating. It's very frustrating, Tom, that it's almost two step forwards, one step backward, uh, yeah. one step forward, two step backwards, because they make progress in some areas, and they've done a very good job in certain areas, and then you have these little blow-ups. David, and I mean... This is what's frustrating. I mean, you and I, we eat at the same McDonald's, but before we go down to Credit Suisse in Zurich, it's $14 <laughs> for a number two value meal. David, you know this story, and you know Zurich better than most anyone we speak to. When do, are they taken out of their misery? When do they mate? When do they buy somebody else? Or when does somebody buy them? Where does Credit Suisse fit in five and ten years out? Well, to be honest with you, I think it's quite obvious that the two Swiss investment banks have trouble competing with the big, we'll call them the Anglo banks, you know, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan. And there has been talk, and as you know, there has been rumor I mean, something I think can be done with UBS, this investment bank, Credit Suisse. I mean, there's just too much duplication there. And I think there is potential for there to be a Swiss powerhouse. But there are technical difficulties to this. But I think one has to, especially in light of what's happened in the last few weeks, one has to really ask oneself whether there's something that can be done to add critical mass to these investment banks by putting them together. David, or, I worked for or, Credit or Suisse. Someone else, by the way. Yeah. yeah so, so, David, I worked for Credit Suisse for five years, way back in the day. But so, I followed this story very closely, and, and like, it just seems like time and time again, 
they find themselves in situations that no bank would want to find themselves, and they do it more frequently than others. What is it about their culture, do you think, that kind of puts them in positions where they're in, you know, situations they just don't want to be in? Yeah. I mean, there have been periods of time, by the way, where they've done very well. Don't forget, during the global financial crisis, they were one of the few banks to come out relatively unscathed. They did a good job there. But before that, if we go back into history, the tech bubble, they did not do well. This is the first time we actually made an investment in Credit Suisse after they kind of collapsed. After the tech bubble, they had a change in management. We invested in it. Actually did quite well, sold out most of the stock, probably should have sold it all out. And then, of course, post the global financial crisis is where you saw these banana peels. And yeah. what I think has happened, you had Brady Dugan yeah. as CEO, yep. good good person, but he didn't take risk off the table. He didn't change the culture yeah. like should have been done. And then Tijan came in, started to ruffled a lot of feathers, by the way. Don't forget, when, when Tijan TM came in, he ruffled a lot of feathers. On the trading floor. <laughs> yes, and he should have ruffled a lot more, it looks like. <laughs> but I have to say, and I've been very public about this, I mean, the, the chairman's been in place for over 10 years. He comes from a law and entertainment experience. And all of this has happened under his watch. He was the wrong person to be the top of the organization. We argued vociferously for his removal last February and and March, and it didn't happen. And it's finally, you know, we're on to his last month. There's a very, very strong banker coming into Credit Suisse starting May 1st. And I think it's it's literally like the Calvary, because you need someone from the outside to go through that organization and to change the culture via mm-hmm. changing incentives um, and so the inherent strength this bank has can come to the surface instead of the weaknesses. Right now, the weaknesses are coming to the surface. What needs to happen is the strength needs to come to the surface. So, uh, David, you know, obviously the Credit Suisse has got this tremendous private banking franchise on a, a global scale. But I'll tell you, you know, the investment banking chops that they have are very, very strong on a global scale. Are you of the opinion that they should try to be a global investment bank? Or do you kind of put them in a bucket of a Deutsche Bank where, you know what, they should really just focus on Europe? I think they should focus on the franchises where they could develop a competitive advantage. And whether that means certain segments in Europe or other certain segments around the world, I don't think being a universal investment bank, mm-hmm. um, that th- I don't believe they have the capability to do that. Maybe if they did put together uh, with, with UBS, mm-hmm. would see that. But at this stage, uh, there's no demonstration <clears throat> that they are capable of being a full-fledged uh, yeah. global investment bank. David, one more question on this this huge uproar, this margin call and the billions, billions lost. We still don't know all of it, uh, folks. One thing I noticed, David Harrow, is the sense of geography. Nomura is over there. Credit Suisse is over there. Yep. And others who did better are over here. Did geography play into some of the allocation of these billions of losses? That's a good question. I, I don't really have a clear answer to that. Um, you know, Nomura and Credit Suisse are two very different companies, by the way. Um, I mean, the Japanese have always had this history of even worse results than the Swiss mm-hmm. and Credit Suisse in terms of investment banks. And then, you know, what would happen is they would go somewhere new, blow it up, yeah. 
retreat and then go back after a few years. Uh, you know, I think it might have something to do with um, in the client relationship is something one could look at. Okay, David, we got to switch. I don't know for yeah. a fact. We got to switch in the time we got left, David, here on the international um, in, in investments. So much of it is predicated on a weak dollar. Can you succeed without a weak dollar? Oh yes, yes, we can, we can succeed without a weak dollar. Um, in fact, a strong dollar with a um, weak foreign currencies would 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 be good for my companies. You know, for a long time, for a long time, you know, the, we had this uh, uh, currency thing in our face, and now perhaps some of it's turning, uh, in, meaning we had a, sh- um, a stronger dollar over the last four or five years. Um, you know, this eventually benefits foreign companies. But I think more importantly is this notion of where the value plays tend to be. If you look outside of the United States, uh, the the negative has been the weaker tech sector overseas and stronger what we'll call kind of value plays. And I think this is what one of the things that will help, um, you know, foreign investment returns is that the bubble that's kind of blown from tech companies that don't make money. And I want to differentiate between two things. Cash flow streams are what make a company valuable. And some tech companies have huge market values with low um, cash flow streams. And others have a cash flow stream that supports the market value. And I think the rotation that we will see to continue to come out of are those companies which have low cash flow streams and high market values. And what where we see the opposite, high cash flow streams and low market values is in a right. lot of the European industrials and materials and financial companies. And this is why I feel very, very good about European equities right. over the next 12 to 18 months. Because David Harrow, thank you so much. Got to leave it there. Oakmark, David Harrow in Chicago. Greatly appreciated. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.